I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And on this episode, we explore the pending Supreme Court case, Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association against Blair. And in the course of that, we will unpack the fascinating and often forgotten text and history of the 21st Amendment. Uh, joining us to dive into the technical but completely fascinating constitutional issues surrounding not only the 21st Amendment for a special Valentine's Day episode, but also the Dormant Commerce Clause to end any Valentine's-like celebrations, and the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which is always an occasion for celebration and champagne toasts, are two of America's leading Supreme Court advocates uh, who've been uh, especially involved in the case and we're honored to Michael Bindis is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. He litigates in courts nationwide in court cases involving freedom of speech, economic liberty, and educational choice, and he directs the Institute for Justice's National Food Freedom Initiative. Uh, Michael was the counsel of record in this case for the respondents, the Ketchum family. Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Jeff. And John Neiman is a member of the Maynard Cooper General Litigation Group and chair of the firm's appellate practice group. He focuses on constitutional and regulatory litigation, and he was the former Solicitor General of the state of Alabama. John filed an amicus brief in support of petitioners in this case on behalf of the Center for Alcohol Policy. John, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Jeff. Glad to be here. Mike, tell us about the facts. Who are Doug and Mary Ketchum? What is their claim in the state of Tennessee? And what does the text in history say about whether or not they should have to live in the state of Tennessee for two years before they can operate a liquor store? Well, Doug and Mary Ketchum, uh, we'll go back a couple of years here, back in 2016, uh, were living in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, They have a daughter in their in her 30s who is severely disabled uh, she is a quadriplegic she has severe cerebral palsy um, and she suffered a lung collapse from a temperature inversion in the salt lake valley uh, doug and mary were advised by their doctor at that point that they needed to leave the salt lake valley um, the air quality was uh, not good for their daughter she wasn't expected to live much longer and so they started looking for an opportunity outside of salt lake somewhere that would be a better environment for their daughter, Stacy, but also uh, an economic opportunity the opportunity that would allow them to uh, care for her uh, and also uh, enable them to support their family. And so they found this opportunity in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, it was a retail liquor shop that was coming up uh, for sale. And they thought this would be an excellent opportunity. It would give them the flexibility they needed to care for Stacy while also enabling them to support themselves. And so with the intention of uh, purchasing the store, uh, using most of their retirement funds, uh, they applied for a liquor license in Tennessee. And that's when things started to get interesting. Uh, Tennessee has uh, a law on the books uh, pertaining to the licensing of retail liquor establishments, uh, retail liquor stores. These are what you would typically consider package stores. Um, In order to get a license to operate, own and operate one of these stores, you have to have been a resident of the state for two years. Uh, You can then get a license. That license expires after one year. 
And then to renew it, you have to have been a resident of the state for 10 years. Uh, so you do the math here. It doesn't quite add up. Uh, and, and that's the very uh, purpose of this is it's to prevent outsiders like Doug and Mary Ketchum from coming into the state and opening uh, a store that would compete uh, with existing retail stores in the state. Uh, Doug and Mary knew about this law before they moved out there. Uh, but they weren't concerned because the Tennessee attorney general had twice opined in 2012 and 2014 that this law was unconstitutional in violation of the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution. And because of that, the state had not been enforcing it for several years. Doug and Mary were assured it would not be a problem. And so uh, they applied for the license and they were about to get it. Around the same time, Total Wine, uh, the national retailer, uh, was also applying for a license in Tennessee. And uh, they likewise are uh, were owned by out-of-state uh, uh, persons. Uh, but they were assured as well that this residency requirement would not be a problem for them because the state was not enforcing it. Um, that was all fine. The licenses were being processed when, lo and behold, the Tennessee Wine and Spirit Retailers Association threatened to sue the state if it issued licenses to the Ketchums and to Total Wine. And at that point, uh, the state, uh, not sure of what it should do, uh, went to court and filed an action in state court, basically asking a judge to tell the state whether or not these residency requirements were constitutional. Um, and the 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 real underlying question there was whether or not these provisions violate the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution, uh, which prohibits states from discriminating against out-of-state uh, entities, industries, um, or instead whether these laws were justified by the 21st Amendment of the Constitution, which gives states certain power over the regulation of alcohol in, uh, in their borders. And uh, the case was removed to federal court. The district court held that these laws were unconstitutional in violation of the uh, Commerce Clause. Uh, that decision was affirmed by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And at that point, the Retailers Association asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the case, uh, which it did. And the case was argued uh, this past January, January 16th. Thank you for setting us up so well and for teeing up the conflict between the Commerce Clause and the 21st Amendment. John, uh, can you describe uh, the arguments about why the Tennessee law allegedly violates the Commerce Clause, or what's known as the Dormant Commerce Clause, uh, which prohibits states from discriminating against out-of-staters. Tell us what the Dormant Commerce Clause is, and then uh, tell us about the claim that the 21st Amendment gives states such broad authority to regulate alcohol that it may represent a kind of exception to the Dormant Commerce Clause prohibition on out-of-state discrimination, and then tell us how you think that conflict between the two clauses should be resolved. Sure. Well, I would say a couple of things about the facts of the case and the issues that are in front of the court. Uh, one really important component of all this is that the 10-year the requirement for renewals for licenses is almost certainly not in front of the court at this point in time. The petitioners uh, in this case, the Tennessee wine retailers, did not seek to defend that component of the law. They did not seek the Supreme Court's review of the Sixth Circuit's decision on the 10-year requirement uh, and instead limited uh, the question presented to the question whether 
the, uh, the, the two-year durational residency requirement uh, for persons or entities that uh, want to sell basically hard liquor in Tennessee violates the Dormant Commerce Clause. Uh, that, I think that reality will be very important uh, in terms of the way that the court decides the case, and there are certainly issues about whether the court uh, will address the 10-year component at all. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about that in more detail a little bit later. Uh, the other uh, component of the facts that I think is really important to understand at the outset is uh, I don't think that it's accurate to say that the purpose of this Tennessee law uh, was simply to prevent outsiders from uh, competing with uh, in-state uh, retailers. Uh, there was a remarkable moment uh, in uh, the oral argument of this case in January uh, when Justice Breyer, who is hardly thought of as sort of the history hawk uh, on uh, the court, uh, stopped uh, Total Wines counsel Carter Phillips and said effectively, uh, we have a ton of history here militating in favor of the state's ability uh, to do precisely what it has done here with respect to a two-year uh, requirement. Uh, Justice Breyer is, is not thought of as a justice who uh, focuses much on history. He tends to ask questions about the practical aspects of the law and pragmatic issues. So it was quite a remarkable moment when Justice Breyer uh, almost played the role of a Justice Scalia or Justice Thomas and said, we need to focus on the history here. Uh, and I think a full, full understanding of the facts requires us, uh, if Justice Breyer is sort of like Dot Brown and Back to the Future, to, to get into the constitutional DeLorean with Justice Breyer and go back to two really, really important dates that tell us something about the meaning of the uh, 21st Amendment and also its interaction with the Dormant Commerce Clause. Uh, those two dates are 1919 on the one hand and, and 1933 in the other. Uh, so uh, why is 1919 important? Well, in the years leading up to that, uh, the United States had been struggling with the question of what to do about al alcohol. Uh, it's kind of difficult from our vantage point in 2019 to conceive of how significant a problem uh, alcohol was. Part of the reason why uh, it was such a problem before 1919 is that many of the economic actors, many of the retailers uh, who were controlling alcohol distribution in the country at that time didn't have ties to local communities. They were focused solely on profit uh, motives and boosting consumption by individuals uh, and not focused on the problems that excessive drinking can uniquely have on local neighborhoods and local uh, communities. Uh, many states at that time responded to those economic actors by experimenting with all-out prohibition, uh, but something stood in the way, and that was a little thing that you've already alluded to, Jeff, called the Dormant Commerce Clause. Uh, everybody in 1919 uh, understood that states had virtually complete control over the way that alcohol would be distributed within their states, but under the Supreme Court's understanding of the Dormant Commerce Clause at that time— uh, it was believed that states had no control over alcohol that was shipped into uh, a state from another state. Uh, in other words, the understanding of the Dormant Commerce Clause was states could not regulate alcohol in a way that affected interstate commerce. That would be a, a matter solely for uh, Congress. Uh, so you had court decisions, particularly from the Supreme Court, holding as much, preventing states from uh, keeping other states from shipping alcohol into their borders. So it created this unworkable system in which states, on the one hand, were trying to effectuate prohibition 
within states or at least heavily regulate alcohol. And on the other hand, they couldn't do anything about alcohol that was coming into their states from out of state. Uh, so Congress enacted a couple of laws, uh, federal statutes that made clear that states could in fact uh, turn off the taps uh, in this regard, uh, could regulate the flow of alcohol into their borders so long as they treated uh, out-of-state alcohol the same as in-state alcohol. So that gets us to 1919, the first really important year for the purposes of the facts uh, in this case, I think. In that year, the American people said uh, even the system that Congress had effectuated, where states had some control over the interstate flow of alcohol, wasn't enough. Uh, Americans said, we need a national prohibition on uh, the use of alcohol. And that led to the uh, 18th Amendment, which was ratified uh, 100 years to the date before uh, the parties ended up arguing at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, the case at hand. Uh, so what happened next? Uh, over the 14 years that followed, it became apparent that uh, the 18th Amendment had been a mistake. Uh, it wasn't that uh, people all of a sudden decided that alcohol didn't cause uh, grave social problems. Far from it. Uh, but it became apparent that prohibition itself wasn't feasible. Uh, people were circumventing the law through speakeasies, through organized crime and the like. So a national consensus developed around two ideas. Uh, the first is prohibition is not going to work. But the second is that if we are going to allow alcohol, uh, we need to regulate the heck out of it. Uh, we need to have sort of a heavy duty uh, type of regulation that we don't see from any other uh, legal commodity. So that brings us to the second really important date uh, for historical background purposes here. That's 1933. Uh, in that year, uh, the people of the United States take what is uh, an extraordinary step of amending the Constitution, something that seems uh, very difficult to do today. Uh, that amendment was the 21st Amendment, uh, and that amendment did uh, two things, uh, effectuated the two ideas that I just discussed. It, it first repealed the 18th Amendment, uh, but it also restored the state's powers uh, to exercise virtually complete control over the liquor markets within uh, their particular uh, localities. So in the wake of that amendment, which effectively immunized state alcohol regulation from scrutiny under the Dormant Commerce Clause, uh, the states at that time uh, tried to regulate alcohol in one of two ways. One is uh, that they developed government-owned monopolies that would sell the alcohol themselves. We still see remnants of those monopolies in uh, ABC stores, which I believe uh, control the alcohol sale, for example, uh, the sale of hard liquor, at least in Pennsylvania, the state you're in, Jeff. They also control uh, the, the sale of alcohol in the state I'm talking to you from, Alabama. They also control the sale of, of hard liquor in uh, the state that the Ketchums lived in before they moved to Tennessee, Utah. Uh, so that was one option states employed. Uh, another option was to license private uh, companies to sell alcohol for the state, but states were very careful in light of all the problems that surrounded alcohol distribution before prohibition to limit the number of licenses uh, that would be available and also to uh, make sure uh, that they were very careful about whom they granted licenses to. So nearly all of the states that adopted a licensing system at the time uh, decided that uh, among the qualifications for a uh, a retailer uh, would be a residency uh, requirement, not unlike uh, the two-year durational residency requirement that Tennessee imposed when it uh, decided to uh, go wet in 19, 
39. Uh, so all those laws were in place for many, many years uh, before uh, we got to uh, 2016 and the, direct, the, the specific facts that gave rise uh, to this case uh, developed uh, and the uh, a floor, the Ketchum's company, along with Total Wine, this company that basically wants to become the Walmart uh, of alcohol throughout the United States, uh, challenged these provisions as violating the Dormant Commerce Clause, even though they had been around uh, for decades before then. Thank you very much for taking us into the Constitutional DeLorean, as you put it, with Justice Breyer, and for that great history lesson. As you know, Justice Breyer said in the oral argument, today 34 states, according to my count, have rules just like this, except maybe not the same number of years. So, Michael, what to make of that history, and uh, what has the court said about those 34 laws with residency requirements in the past? And what is the argument now before the court about how the text and history of the 21st Amendment don't create an economic protectionism exception to the Dormant Commerce Clause, as, as one of the justices called it, but instead allow the regulation and just in the interest of putting the text on the table, because we love to do that on We the People, I will read the text of Section 2 of the 21st Amendment. The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. And the text is a, certainly uh, the first place to start in understanding the the uh, the amendment, Jeff. Uh, as Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh returned to the text several times during the argument and focused on what it actually prohibits, and that is the transportation or import, importation into a state uh, of alcohol in violation of its laws. And that is what the amendment was designed primarily to do. If a state wanted to remain dry after the repeal of prohibition, it needed to ensure its ability to, number one, prohibit the production and sale of alcohol within the state, but also prevent out-of-state alcohol from coming in. And that's what the amendment was uh, primarily designed to do. That's a much different thing than uh, enacting restrictive, discriminatory restrictions on who can do business within the state. Now, recall, the Ketchums are now residents of the state of Tennessee. They have resided there uh, since 2016, yet they are still being told that they cannot own and operate a liquor store in the state because they haven't lived there sufficiently long enough in the eyes of the Tennessee Wine and Spirit Retailers Association and uh, presumably the state. Um, now let's let's look at that restriction uh, in comparison to some of those other uh, 34 examples that uh, that you spoke of before. Tennessee is on the extreme end of uh, this type of restriction. One thing I didn't mention when I when I set this up at the outset is that when it comes to a corporate applicant, uh, someone like Total Wine or a Floor Investments, the Ketchum's company. Those two and 10-year residency requirements apply not just to the individual applicant. They apply in the case of a corporate applicant to every officer, director, and stockholder of the corporation. Uh, there are, to be sure, residency requirements in other states, but when you have the combination of the two and 10-year requirements, that extreme durational period – as well as this 100% stockholder, officer, director component, Tennessee really is an outlier here. Now, what does the, the fact that these uh, provisions exist in other states mean? 
doesn't mean uh, anything insofar as uh, whether or not they're constitutional. Obviously, the existence of laws, including laws uh, you know that are that exist in a, a number of states throughout the country, is no guarantee that those laws are constitutional. Um, moreover, even if there was some legitimate justification for those types of laws in the 1930s, right as uh, prohibition was repealed. Um, any such justification no longer exists. Presumably, these were enacted because back in the 1930s, you didn't have such things as computerized background checks, uh, whereby the licensing authority uh, can very quickly uh, assess the uh, the background of an applicant, ensure that they don't have any kind of criminal history or anything like that. Um, we have that now. Obviously, that was not uh, available in the 1930s. And so even if you assume that the existence of these types of laws uh, speaks to uh, their constitutionality, the fact that they existed in the 30s uh, speaks to their constitutionality, things have changed. Circumstances have changed. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly made clear that uh, due to changed circumstances, a law that was constitutional at one point in the past uh, can become unconstitutional. Um and uh, so, again, the existence of these laws, the fact that they were around in the early 30s, really doesn't have much to say about whether they're constitutional today. Uh, what does uh, speak to their constitutionality today uh, is the Supreme Court's most recent recent uh, dive into this area. That came back uh, in a case called Granholm versus Heald back in 2005, uh, in which the Supreme Court held uh, that the 21st Amendment does not somehow save or immunize a law that discriminates out against out-of-state uh, uh, economic interests. In that case, you had uh, a law that allowed, or two laws, one in New York, one in Michigan, that allowed in-state wineries to ship directly to consumers, but that prohibited out-of-state wineries from doing the same. Essentially, wineries in-state were allowed to act as their own retailers and send uh, directly to consumers, um, but those from outside the state could not do the same. And the Supreme Court held that that violated the Dormant Commerce Clause because it blatantly discriminated against out-of-state economic interests. And the, the court went through this extensive history, uh, the same history that John just recounted, and concluded that the 21st Amendment was not meant to somehow uh, act as a blank check, uh, enabling the states to discriminate against out-of-state uh, actors. And in that light, it, it tried to reconcile the 21st Amendment and the Commerce Clause, uh, and it held uh, squarely uh, that the non-discrimination principle of the Commerce Clause uh, is not somehow upended by the 21st Amendment, and likewise that the 21st Amendment cannot save a law uh, that discriminates against uh, uh, interstate commerce. And so we're confident that the court is going to uh, apply Granholm uh, very straightforwardly here and invalidate Tennessee's uh, requirements, which do exactly the same thing. They discriminate against out-of-state applicants as well as newly arrived in-state applicants like Doug and Mary Ketchum. Uh, and the fact that there are some other states that have these laws on the books is neither here nor there. That doesn't mean they're constitutional. They're not, and we're sure that the, the Supreme Court is going to hold as much. Thank you so much for that. Uh, the Granholm case, uh, which you mentioned, was a 5-4 to four decision with a really unusual lineup. It was Kennedy joined by Scalia, Souter, Ginsburg, and Breyer, and the dissent was Stevens, O'Connor, Thomas, and Rehnquist, suggesting the cross 
partisan nature of this case. John, uh, what is the response to Michael's suggestion that there, the 21st Amendment doesn't create an economic protectionism exception to the Dormant Commerce Clause? Justice Kagan, during the argument, said, wouldn't it be a better idea if we said the Dormant Commerce Clause does apply and then let the state come back and say we can meet that test? We have real health and safety concerns here. Our law is well tailored to address those concerns. Uh, in other words, what are the actual interests aside from economic protectionism that the state is trying to achieve here? And could it assert those interests under the Dormant Commerce Clause? Yeah, Jeff, I think it's really important to emphasize that uh, the state here is not claiming or that the states that support uh, the petitioner uh, as well as the petitioner itself they are not claiming that there is an economic protectionism exception to uh, the dormant commerce clause or that they, they're not they're certainly not conceding that the law at issue here is uh, protectionist. Uh, the, these laws had a long pedigree precisely because they were designed as of uh, 1933 in the, uh, the repeal of prohibition uh, to make sure that the crisis of 1919 uh, did not recur again. Uh, so in addition to uh, the states that used licenses to or used a licensing system uh, to regulate the retail sale of hard liquor at that point in time, uh, almost every state adopted something called a, the three-tier system. Uh, this is a system in which the three tiers of alcohol distribution, production, wholesaling slash distribution, uh, and retailing are separate. Uh, if you are a manufacturer of alcohol, generally, you cannot be a distributor of alcohol. Likewise, if you're a distributor of alcohol, if you're uh, an owner of a wholesaler uh, who uh, has a fleet of trucks that ships alcohol from a producer uh, to a particular retailer, you can't own either part of the producer or uh, any of the retailer as well. Uh, each one of those tiers, well, particularly the wholesale and the retail uh, tier, uh, almost inherently uh, have to be physically present in a state for the system to work. Uh, and the court has repeatedly recognized that a physical presence requirement for wholesalers uh, and retailers is unquestionably legitimate. In the Granholm decision that you and Michael just mentioned, Justice Kennedy, in writing the majority opinion, went out of his way to say that the three-tier system is unquestionably uh, legitimate. Justice Kennedy quoted a Justice Scalia concurrence from an earlier case called Healy, in which Justice Scalia said, of course, it would be constitutional for a state to require all alcohol to be funneled through in-state wholesalers. So there's no doubt that the Constitution and the 21st Amendment countenance a system in which states require alcohol to be funneled through uh, in-state entities, entities that are physically present in the state. The problem that the Respondents' Council, uh, Total, Wine, Total Wines Council at Oral Argument faced uh, was uh, a barrage of questions from justices who said, look, in light of the history, in light of all these decisions where we've said physical presence is unquestionably legitimate and unquestionably constitutional, how can your view of what Granholm held uh, in other words, that there can be no laws that make any distinctions between out-of-state out and in-state business be uh, a plausible one. Uh, and Total Wine had no response at all. The reason is that Granholm uh, did not hold 
that all laws that make distinctions between out-of-state and in-state businesses that relate to alcohol violate the Dormant Commerce Clause and are not shielded from the 21st Amendment. What Granholm said, consistent with the historical understanding of both the Dormant Commerce Clause and states' powers, was that laws that make distinctions between in-state and out-of-state products, in other words, in-state and out-of-state alcohol, are not shielded by the 21st Amendment. Uh, In other words, those laws, if if you have a law that says uh, that California wine cannot be shipped to retail, to to consumers within your state, but that Wisconsin wine can be, uh, that's a problem because the, both the history and the jurisprudence never countenanced discrimination uh, between products from one state and products from another. But the history and the jurisprudence from the Supreme Court had always envisioned that states would have complete control over the distribution system uh, within the state's borders and necessarily would have the power to make distinctions between in-state and out-of-state business. So the petitioner's uh, position in this case is wholly consistent with both Granholm and Granholm's recognition that a three-tier system requiring presence within the state is unquestionably legitimate. Michael, your uh, thoughts on John's claim that uh, Granholm and other cases give the state broad authority over distribution. And then if you can put on the table uh, in this round the Privileges or Immunities Clause. On the Institute for Justice website, you have a wonderful explainer, and you argue that laws that discriminate against newly arrived residents of any state have a tainted history, going back to the infamous Black Codes passed by Southern states after the Civil War. You and IJ have long argued that the Privileges or Immunities Clause guarantees the right to travel freely between the states for purposes of earning a living or engaging in the ordinary occupations of life. And you say that's the right that Doug and Mary seek to exercise with their move to Tennessee. My scan of the transcript of the argument suggested that the words privileges or immunities didn't come up in the oral argument. Why was that? Were you disappointed? And why do you think that this law violates the privileges or immunities clause? Sure. Well, we'll start with uh, the the points that John was making um, with regard to uh, the dormant commerce clause still. Uh, Number one, he he uh, did uh, try to uh, disassociate the state's position. I'm using states plural. There were a number of states who uh, filed supportive briefs on uh, the side of the petitioners in this case. Um, he's trying to disassociate their position with economic protectionism, saying that they're not trying to justify uh, this durational residency requirement on the grounds of economic protectionism. Yet during the argument, the uh, attorney representing the Wine and Spirit Retailers Association as well as the Solicitor General of Illinois, who is arguing as an amicus on uh, the same side, uh, said unequivocally that economic protectionism uh, is perfectly permissible and does not violate the Dormant Commerce Clause when it comes to alcohol regulation, that the 21st Amendment essentially removed uh, uh, or immunized uh, any alcohol-related law 
um, from constitutional review under the Commerce Clause, even if it was motivated solely by economic protectionism, which prompted Justice Kagan during the argument to say, then, isn't the sky the limit? Why stop at two or ten years? Can't you, you know, the sky's the limit at that point? Um, and they unabashedly uh, repeated uh, that economic protectionism is not grounds for invalidating a law um, when it comes to alcohol regulation. I don't think the court will countenance that, uh, that extreme position. Uh, moreover, with respect to physical presence, um, you know, John makes the point that physical presence is almost inherently required, for example, when it comes to a wholesaler or a brick-and-mortar um, uh, shop in a state. Well, Total Wine and Doug and Mary Ketchum are operating brick-and-mortar shops that are physically present in the state of Tennessee. That is not the issue here. Um, they are both operating brick-and-mortar shops with physical presence in the state of Tennessee. The question is, can the state prohibit the ownership of that physical shop based on where someone lives or, in the Ketchum's case, where they used to live. Uh, and again, we don't think that the court is going to uh, hold that the state may do so. And that's where we get to the Privileges or Immunities Clause as uh, what we've offered up as an alternative grounds on which the court can affirm the judgment of the Sixth Circuit in validating the durational residency requirements. The Privileges or Immunities Clause um, was enacted as part of the 14th Amendment, and it was designed uh, in large part to ensure that uh, southern states could not pass laws like the Black Codes, what are commonly now referred to as the Black Codes, laws that in the wake of the um, uh, abolition of slavery, the southern states used to erect barriers to the ability of the freedmen as well as their northern supporters uh, to move to and around the South um, in pursuit of a living. Um, there are a number of types of uh, statutes that were very common in the southern states uh, before ratification of the 14th Amendment that were designed precisely to impede the mobility of the freedmen and ensure that they would be you know, quote, kept in their place, uh, both literally and figurative, figuratively. The idea was you now had a free and mobile uh, black labor force in the United States. The former Southern plantation owners saw that as a threat, uh, an economic threat to them. And so they convinced their buddies in the state legislatures in the South to pass these types of laws that would restrict the mobility of the freedmen and prevent them from earning an honest living on equal terms with other residents of the South. And the history is replete um, with examples of these types of laws and the debates over the 14th Amendment, as well as some of the congressional statutes that preceded it, make clear that one of the overriding purposes of the Privileges or Immunities Clause was to ensure that Southern states could no longer do this. And so we have argued that the Privileges or Immunities Clause protects the right of folks like Doug and Mary to move about the nation freely and that they have a right as citizens of the, this nation to move to any state and to earn an honest living in that state regardless of their state of origin. And most recently, in 1999, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled in a case called Science versus Roe that a one-year durational residency requirement for, uh, for full welfare benefits in California 
was unconstitutional because it violated the privileges or immunities clause. And as the court uh, made clear in that case, it has always been common ground that the clause protects the right of the newly arrived citizen in a state to be treated on equal terms with other residents of that state. And we've argued that uh, if the clause protects the right to be treated equally uh, in connection with welfare benefits, then surely it protects the right to be treated equally in connection with the ability to earn an honest living. Um, now, as you know, Jeff, the, the clause did not come up during the argument. Uh, we're not surprised by that. Uh, number one, uh, one of the champions of the clause uh, is Justice Thomas. And Justice Thomas is, uh, as your listeners probably know, uh, not the most active questioner on the bench. Uh, and so to the extent that there is interest on this issue, I think, uh, you know, it would certainly be of interest to him and uh, as is usually the case in oral arguments, he did not ask any questions re uh, uh, regarding this or any other issue in the case. Um, nevertheless, we know that he's interested in it. He has long sought uh, to reinvigorate the clause as the primary bulwark uh, for the economic liberty and freedom of, of, of Americans. And uh, we're hopeful that uh, that he and possibly some of the other justices uh, will take this as an occasion to expand on the history of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, its, uh, its purpose in preventing these types of barriers that impede the ability of American citizens to migrate to a new state and earn an honest living when they arrive there. So – uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see whether there's discussion of it in any of the opinions uh, from the justices. But uh, in any event, it's an alternative ground on which the court can and should uphold uh, or uh, uh, affirm the, the judgment of the Sixth Circuit in validating the residency requirements. John, what would be the consequences of striking down Tennessee's residency requirement under the Privileges or Immunities Clause or under the Dormant Commerce Clause, you vividly talked about uh, the desire to become the Walmart of liquor. Uh, Justice Gorsuch in the oral argument, of course, as you know, uh, said isn't the next business model to try to operate as the Amazon of liquor. Uh, do you believe that invalidation of this requirement, especially under the Privileges or Immunities Clause, uh, as a kind of economic protectionism would uh, strike down much of the regulatory apparatus uh, of liquor in the United States uh, and uh, allow for Amazons or Walmarts of liquor to flourish. Total Wines lawyers certainly offered the justices no course of action uh, that would have struck down the Tennessee durational residency requirement uh, and not open the doors uh, to uh, striking down uh, all sorts of other uh, state laws that the court has said are unquestionably legitimate, including uh, requirements that a store be physical or a company be physically present in within a state. Now, I think it's important to separate out the privileges or immunities issue from the dormant commerce clause issue in the case. I'm always hesitant to make predictions with any degree of confidence about what the court is going to do, but I feel 100% confident that the majority of the court will not rely on the privileges or immunities clause in this case. It's a fascinating clause. I admire the work that the Institute for Justice, Michael's shop has done in uh, sort of teasing out the implications of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which has been long buried in constitutional uh, jurisprudence. I admire the work they've done in teasing them out, I should say, 
uh, with respect to other areas of the law, not necessarily alcohol regulation. Uh, a, a procedural problem in this case is that the implications were not teased out in this litigation uh, until far too late uh, a stage in the case. So the, the Privileges or Immunities Clause was not only not discussed by the lower courts, uh, it was not raised by the parties below. Uh, and it seems inconceivable to me that the court will breathe uh, life into the Privileges or Immunities Clause uh, at this stage of the case without any lower courts having done any briefing uh, or discussion of the issue. And in fact, if you look at the petitioner's briefs in this case, they largely just ignored uh, the Privileges or Immunities question altogether. Uh, so we don't have a lot of, of briefing or argument on the issue. All that said, while, again, I admire a lot of the work that the Institute for Justice has done in exploring the contours of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the claim in this case strikes me as an especially uh, weak claim. Uh, let's be clear about what Tennessee uh, told uh, the Ketchums that they could and could not do. Uh, on the one hand, Utah told the Ketchums that they could not open up uh, a store uh, selling hard liquor. That, that In Utah, that is a government monopoly, and uh, the Ketchums had no ability to sell hard liquor in that state. Uh, likewise, Tennessee did not tell the Ketchums, uh, if you move to Tennessee, uh, the economic doors of the state will be closed to you. They didn't even say you can't open up a beer shop, you can't open up a wine shop. They didn't even say you can't open up a bar. The only the only uh, kind of business that Tennessee informed the Ketchums that they would not be able to do, or at least the Tennessee statutes, I suppose, told the Ketchums they would not be able to engage in, uh, was uh, a store that sold hard liquor. That was the one area of the law in which Tennessee uh, statutes uh, carry over the project of 1933 in terms of being very careful about granting licenses granting relatively few licenses and making sure that the people who possess the licenses or the companies that possess the licenses have been in the state long enough to understand the norms that govern in the state uh, and have been in the state long enough to give Tennessee the ability to assess uh, their ability to uh, to sell hard liquor uh, in, uh, in, in, in a consistent way with the, with the manner in which Tennessee has approached the issue. Uh, so, Whereas uh, in a case like Sons v. Roe, California's durational residency requirement regarding welfare benefits made it practically impossible for someone who was dependent on welfare benefits to move to California, uh, Tennessee's law creating a very narrow durational residency requirement with respect to a very narrow sliver of the alcohol industry uh, did not create any sort of barrier uh, in preventing anyone from moving to the state and uh, making a living in some way. It seems uh, unlikely to me that even if this issue eventually gets raised in a, in a procedurally appropriate way, that it will stand as a barrier to durational residency requirements uh, like the one that Tennessee is defending here. Uh, and with respect to the Dormant Commerce Clause, it seems to me, uh, I can understand why uh, some of the parties in the case attempted to inject the Privileges or Immunities Clause issue into the case because the dormant commerce clause argument simply was inconsistent with everything the court has said about the unquestioned legitimacy of physical presence requirements in the past. Uh, if, if the respondents uh, were able, could, 
were able to offer, if this respondents have been able to offer a persuasive argument to the court that the Dormant Commerce Clause could forbid durational residency requirements without forbidding physical presence requirements, uh, they would have done so. But to this day, we've seen nothing in the briefs or nothing at the oral argument uh, in which the respondents to the case have explained how durational residency requirements can be unconstitutional under the Dormant Commerce Clause because they discriminate, uh, yet uh, physical presence requirements are not uh, unconstitutional because e even though they discriminate as well. Michael, what's your response to why you believe that uh, physical presence requirements might be constitutional but not uh, durational requirements? And then uh, handicapping this case is unusually hard. We, we know from Graham that uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas were on opposite sides, so it's an unusually non-ideological case. But if the court were to strike down the requirements, who do you think would be in the majority and on what grounds? Well, with respect to uh, physical presence versus uh, durational residency requirement, um, you know, obviously the physical presence issue is not uh, involved in this case. It's 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 well beyond a physical presence requirement. But you know, I can imagine uh, reasons why a state might be able to uh, credibly claim that physical presence for uh, certain aspects of alcohol distribution uh, is necessary. Now, recall that the, the test for whether or not uh, a law violates the Dormant Commerce Clause uh, is whether the state has a legitimate local interest that could not be served through a reasonable non-discriminatory uh, uh, mechanism. Uh, you know, perhaps uh, the state would have a sufficiently convincing argument, for example, uh, that a physical warehouse is needed for wholesalers so that the state can inspect the product, tax the product, etc., um, and that it could justify that uh, and 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 argue that you know, absent having that physical presence, we couldn't adequately achieve those things that we need to achieve. But that is a much different thing than what we have going on here, which is where the state is. You know, again, we're talking about brick and mortar retail shops. Uh, Total Wine and the and the Ketchums are operating uh, brick and mortar shops with physical presence. But the state is attempting to regulate ownership based on where people have lived in the past. That is a much different thing, and I don't think the state has. Um, any justification, much less uh, a sufficiently important one for requiring uh, two or 10 years presence in the state uh, in order to operate a shop. I, I just see the physical presence uh, uh, scenario as, as, as something wholly different. Um, and as for a lineup uh, with, the, with the court, I, I'm not about to, to try to predict uh, where this is going to go. Um, you know, Granholm, as you mentioned, Jeff, was uh, ideologically an interesting uh, lineup, uh, perhaps strange bedfellows on either side of that uh, of that case, which, as you noted, was a 5-4 decision. Um, you know, I, I personally don't think this will be a close case in the sense of a 5-4 type decision. Uh, I think our side will prevail, and I think it'll be a much bigger margin. And at the end of the day, the fact that there was an uh, uh, unusual ideological lineup um, in Granholm, and I anticipate we may see that here as well, uh, shouldn't be surprising because whether or not a state can discriminate against newly arrived residents 
based on the fact that they moved there from some other state uh, should not be an ideologically uh, uh, liberal or conservative uh, issue. Uh, I think all justices uh, recognize that that type of discrimination against newly arrived residents or out-of-staters for that matter um, is obnoxious to the Commerce Clause, to the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And I think a majority of the court is going to say that the 21st Amendment can't uh, can't save a violation of either of those clauses. John, your thoughts on what the lineup might be and use it to educate our listeners about the different methodological approaches of the justices, what might an originalist uh, hold? How about someone who cares about uh, history and precedent or the court's legitimacy? Given all those considerations, how do you think the court might rule? I think Michael and I agree wholeheartedly that we're very uncomfortable making predictions about lineups. Uh, so I think I'm going to dodge the question respectfully in the same way that he did. I, I will make some predictions about what factors might motivate the justices to uh, decide the case in particular ways. I, I think the first really important factor here is the one I adverted to in uh, at, at the beginning of this podcast regarding history. We, at, the, at some point in the respondent's argument, Justice Breyer, who generally doesn't focus all that much on history, uh, took us uh, for uh, a ride in that constitutional DeLorean, talking about the history of these particular kinds of requirements and also the history associated with state regulation of alcohol. I think it's very difficult, very difficult uh, for the respondents in this case uh, and for any justice who would be sympathetic to their side to reconcile the position that these sorts of durational residency requirements violate the Dormant Commerce Clause with the history that unfolded around not only the ratification of the 21st Amendment in 1933, but the steps that states took in the immediate wake of ratification uh, to uh, effectuate the goals of temperance that everybody wanted to achieve. If states uh, in 1933 thought that durational residency requirements or something the 21st Amendment uh, authorized them to do, then uh, the uh, it seems implausible uh, that, or, or what I should say, that's a very uh, compelling reason to think that, in fact, the 21st Amendment did authorize the states to do so, especially since those kinds of requirements have gone unquestioned now uh, for decades. Uh, the other issue, I think, that seemed to be driving a number of the justices towards the end of respondents' arguments and I'm thinking about Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Kagan, uh, was this question of how the respondents could possibly reconcile their principle, the principle they wanted the court to adopt, with the court's clear statements that uh, in-state presence requirements are permissible and unquestionably legitimate under the 21st Amendment. I, I think it was very telling that when asked to distinguish physical presence requirements from uh, durational residency requirements, Michael, during this podcast, did not say, well, physical presence requirements are shielded from dormant commerce clause under the 21st Amendment. His suggestion was, well, perhaps the dormant commerce clause inquiry would come out differently for physical presence requirements. That is not what the court has said, either in Granholm or in the cases before it. In those cases, the court has said that those requirements are unquestionably legitimate. In other words, there really doesn't need to be a dormant commerce clause inquiry into whether there is 
a less restrictive means of effectuating the state's goals of temperance. Physical presence requirements are unquestionably legitimate because they're authorized by the 21st Amendment. To this day, Total Wine and the other respondents have not offered a principle under which the 21st Amendment would shield physical presence requirements as it does and somehow not shield durational residency requirements uh, from the same sort of, of dormant commerce clause inquiry. Uh, so I think the justices were focused both on the history and also the need to reconcile the court's repeated statements about the unquestioned legitimacy of the three-tier system and physical presence requirements uh, will lean heavily in favor of reversing the Sixth Circuit, telling the Sixth Circuit that the, the broad anti-discrimination principle that it adopted in this case uh, does not accurately reflect either Granholm or the 24th First Amendment jurisprudence generally uh, and require the Sixth Circuit uh, to reconsider in light of uh, the more narrow scope of the Granholm holding focused solely on uh, discrimination against out-of-state products rather than out-of-state entities. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this excellent discussion. This is the time in just a few sentences to make your case and try to persuade our listeners of your constitutional argument. So, Michael, the first closing argument is to you. Why do you believe that the Tennessee residency requirement uh, violates the Constitution, and why should the court strike it down? Uh, simply put, because Americans have a right as citizens of this nation to move to any state and to earn an honest living in it, regardless of their state of origin. Uh, no state can punish a citizen for having moved. Uh, no state state can discriminate against its own residents simply because they moved there from some other state like the Ketchums did. Uh, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, as well as the Commerce Clause, prohibits that kind of discrimination. And the 21st Amendment uh, is not a blank check for the states to engage in that kind of discriminatory legislation. Thank you so much for that. And John, last word to you. Why do you believe the Tennessee residency requirement does not violate the Constitution, and why should the court uphold it? Uh, I said at the outset that it's a little difficult from our vantage point here in 2019 to truly understand the crisis that the country faced in 1919 and again in 1933 when the people of the country took the unusual step of enacting two constitutional amendments dealing with a specific commodity, uh, this being alcohol. Uh, I largely agree with almost everything Michael says about the ability of citizens to uh, earn an honest living uh, and uh, for uh, the, the importance of uh, states following a non-discrimination principle. But what the uh, less what what the what, what the lesson of 1919 uh, and 1933 was uh, was that alcohol was a unique product unlike any other product. It wasn't to be treated like milk. It wasn't to be treated like books. Uh, it uh, required drastic solutions that involved states having, as the court has said over and over again, virtually complete control over the distribution systems uh, within their borders. Uh, that means that in this very limited uh, industry, with respect to this very limited commodity, states have a certain leeway uh, to ensure uh, that the public health dangers that are posed by alcohol uh, do not present themselves, to ensure that the crisis of 1919 and the crisis of 1933 uh, does not arise again, uh, and to ensure that, the, uh, that this product, which can pose dangers if not regulated carefully, uh, would uh, be controlled 
and that the goals of temperance uh, of 1933 would be fulfilled. So in this very narrow, narrow area of the economy, in this very narrow sector, uh, the state's decision to impose a reasonable durational residency requirement before requiring people, before allowing people to engage in this very limited activity is justified and constitutional. Thank you so much, Michael Bendis and John Neiman, for opening the spigot of reason on the 21st Amendment, the Dormant Commerce Clause, and the uh, Privileges or Immunities Clause. This has been an effervescent conversation about the intersection of those three amendments, and you've given our listeners much to learn more about. Michael, John, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Uh, Dear We the People listeners, for homework this week, here's a wonderful read, and it's Dan Okren's last call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. It was such a fascinating story about how the 18th Amendment, which had such intense national support in 1919, was repealed by the 21st Amendment, which had equally intense national support by 1933, and Okrent tells the story in a great narrative that I know you'll enjoy if you feel moved to learn more. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcast, and recommend the show to friends or colleagues, or write to me to tell me what you think of it and how we can improve. Your emails are greatly appreciated, and thanks so much to those of you who've been writing over the past couple weeks. And remember always, when you wake and when you sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the passion, engagement, reasoned wonkery, and love of lifelong learning of all of you who are listening to this podcast and educating yourself about the Constitution. So to allow us to continue to do our work, join as a member, and the way to do that is to visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.